0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
1: Hello, my dark darlings. I'm Markia, and this is the Something Scary Podcast. To our veteran listeners and those sheltering into the dark with us for the first time, welcome. You know, it's important to know where things come from. Whether it's an old locket that beckons for you to open it, an entity that whispers to you in your dreams or the inspirational origins of your favorite scary stories. If we're to know how to proceed forward, we must know the shaky steps it took to get where we are now. These are tales of classic terrors. First, our modern reimagining of Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death. Next, an art collection displays deadly secrets. After that, A home housing a negative being within it. And finally, a homebound man spirals into madness in Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. I receive hundreds of creepy story submissions every single week. As always, the first story you hear is one that we've chosen to animate and post over at youtube.com slash snarled. Then I read a few more stories for the podcast. If you have a tale you're dying to share send me an email at somethingscary@snarled.com, And if you'd like to support the show and receive bonus content, consider joining our Patreon. Our patrons play a huge role in keeping the show running every single week. For more information on how you can help the show and also be a part of it, visit patreon.com slash snarled. So, wanna hear something scary? Edgar Allan Poe was a writer and poet, known for his tales of mystery that embraced the macabre. Some called him eccentric, more called him mad. This is a modern retelling of Poe's The Mask of the Red Death. Poe originally opens his story with this. The Red Death had long devastated the country. Blood was its avatar and its seal. The madness and the horror of blood. The Red Death is what it was called. It was a mysterious disease that consumed victims quickly with sharp pains, dizziness, and profuse bleeding from every orifice and pore on the body. Faces stained red in the clutches of death would reach out, but doing so would latch onto death's next victim. Ways to outrun it were growing scarce. Prospero Sanctuary was a retreat in a ranch estate it boasted that it lay far from the red death that was spreading. For the right price and or amount of followers, those who held high positions, who held old money, are influenced and entertained could qualify for the luxurious commune. But only those who were sure through thorough testing they didn't carry the red death could enter or were rich enough to where the testers would look the other way. After all, people like that surely couldn't catch what the common folk had. Led by tech innovator Princeton Prospero, his state-of-the-art sanctuary invited his many guests to ride out the plague in a space filled with lavish amenities. State-of-the-art gym equipment, fireside chats to build community, and of course, parties. Their lives would no longer be disrupted by the plague. The strict guidelines of separation were for the general public, not for those at Prospero's sanctuary they were above following such restrictions. Sanctuarians were equipped with Prospero's state-of-the-art smartwatches, keeping them up to date on their vitals, on activities, and most importantly, the percentage spread of the Red Death around the country. When the percentage went down to zero, they could leave. To keep his guests distracted, Prospero planned a great festival to celebrate his ingenuity in protecting his sanctuary. A great masked ball was held in the great ballroom with an unveiling of masks scheduled at midnight. The decorations were illuminated by stained glass windows lined in red, an ironic decoration. Within, there was wine, beauty, and security. Without was the red death. That night, masked guests would pause to uneasily look at their watches. The smart watch alerts were like a knell. Numbers of deceased without were growing, and for a moment an air of stillness would pass over the guests. Then, with mirth and laughter, they'd go back to drinking and dancing under their masked guises as the midnight hour drew near. Then, cutting through the party, a sound went off on some people's wrists. Spotted here and there, echoing through the hall, alarms flashing red from their smartwatches. Worried, Prospero realized that was a different alert, one that meant contagion. Impossible. It must be a glitch in the system he reasoned. While puzzling that out, he heard horrified murmurs of a masked figure among the party. It had appeared and now passed through every area of the sanctuary with no one daring to stop it. Did you see their mask? So tasteful and ghastly. What's going on? What does this mean? Who is that? Where did they come from? Just then, the crowd parted in front of Prospero, and there it was. A tall and gaunt figure with a vermilion red visage that distastefully resembled the faces of the corpses outside. Rage-filled, Prospero demanded, Who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? His roar bringing the party to a halt. Head to toe and scarlet, the figure moved forward. Horrified, people backed away, more and more of their wrists sounding and flashing red. Those that wrists had sounded off first were now stricken with dizziness and had begun to bleed from their faces. Screams sounded as more wrists' alarms went off and people scattered. Prospero waved his master control, sealing doors tightly in the sanctuary. Glass panes on doors were marked by bloody hands, screaming for escape as they succumbed to the disease that one or more of them had invited inside with them, thereby infecting all the rest. Prospero walked through halls, sealing off the dying, and all the while, silently following him was the tall red figure, following all the way back to the end of the black ballroom. There, they met in a final confrontation. As his smartwatch rang out the hour of midnight, the failed genius leaped forward, ripping his mask off. And as Prospero, too, was stricken, and his vision filled with the red of his own blood, he gaped at the visage of the pestilent entity. With a cry, Prospero realized they had done this to themselves. No amount of money put one above the red death. His own hubris had called it quickly to him. To him, and to the many that had smugly followed him. The world outside would continue to heed the warnings, staying away and in small groups. With lesser means, yes, but they would outlast it. While he and his glorified, decimated Eden then dropped dead.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take
1: it is said art is born of the blood sweat and tears of its creator and this anonymous creepy pasta the gallery of Henri bouchon will uncover what's truly on the canvas if you go into this one tiny dingy bar in paris and the right bartender is behind the counter that night you might be able to see a very exclusive gallery show of the lost works of one Henri Bouchamp, But, to get in, you have to prove you're a devotee of the artist. You'll be asked in clear and perfect English, what would you like to partake of this glorious night? Answer, absinthe, the anise-flavored liquor. No matter what, any other drink from whiskey to water will kill you as you sleep. The next question will regard the type, and you must answer one of two things. The stuff that man himself could not bear to take, or the good stuff, the best stuff. If you ask for any other absinthe than any other way, you will be plagued by nightmares for 13 days. Each night's dream will be more horrible than the last until, upon the 13th dream, your nightmare will follow you every moment of your waking and sleeping life. If you make it that far before sealing your fate, the bartender will say, Be sure you handle this with care. This is the finest I have. From here, you may do one of two things. Say word for word, I overestimated my fortitude, and I bid you good eve. If the barkeep nods, you may leave the door you entered unharmed and with nothing gained and nothing lost. Or you can go on. You will be given a glass with a seven-sided rim, with each side twisting ever so delicately around the basin until forming a sleek and simple handle. You will also receive a very, very, very special absinthe spoon in the shape of a key. The holes at the key's top serve as the draining point for the alcohol to pour over the sugar cube. And of course, an unmarked bottle, stripped long ago of its label, scraps of paper sticking to its sides, covered in the rot of the decades past. Say, cheers, to your friend, the barkeep, and bottoms up. If you don't, the absinthe will burn every innard it touches with the power and pain of sulfuric acid. If you've done it right, the already dim lights will go off, and darkness will consume the bar. Don't be afraid. The darkness is the cue that you've been approved for the exhibit. Wait out the darkness and keep silent as the dead, lest the bartender decide to make you so. Eventually, not too long, two to three minutes, a green floodlight will shine brightly on a door on the far wall of the bar. The bar will be bathed in green and not just from the floodlight. Either way, take the spoon and put it in the keyhole of the green-lit portal's doorknob it will fit perfectly and reach the end of the keyhole with a resounding click. Inside is a small elevator with the most beautiful woman any mortal eyes can imagine, bathed in the green glow and just such an angle that the light refracts beyond her into the shape of wings. The green fairy herself will ask you, going up, and considering all the trouble you went through would only make sense to say yes. Now, You have one more hurdle to clear. She will ask you, as you cross the line from the bar to the compartment, How would you compare Bouchamp's surrealism to that of, say, René Magritte? For your reply, you must say, I've come to see more than art tonight. If you don't, the green floodlight will blow out. The doors will slam shut and the elevator will plummet through a seemingly infinite blackness before a real light grows brighter as the elevator nears the very depths of hell. Now, if your elevator begins to go up, the green light will also fade, but in its place will be the cool glow of the moon. Now, I'm not as sure about this as the rest, but I've heard that the green fairy kisses you on the cheek as she leaves the elevator. You will enter, from the elevator, a turn-of-the-century parlor, with a large poster of Henri Bouchon on the left side of the opposite wall. It explains the very significance of Mr. Bouchon. You see, he was a struggling surrealist in the 1920s, always making art to try to be free of all premeditation, and managed to do so. You see, after one night in a tiny, dingy, one-story bar in Paris, he began to paint patterns. First, it was geometric patterns, then complete fractals, then images that would be in the newspaper the next day, then next week, then from 50 years ago, a 100 in the future, 200 in the past. Then, on his last night of life, he kidnapped three young girls from their homes at night, murdered them, and painted his finest masterpieces in reds and yellows with the blood and bile of virgins." He committed suicide immediately after painting exactly 13 of those. These are behind the door. The first six from the left show, from left to right, the genesis of the universe. The only true visage of God is viewable to the eyes of man. The true image of Jesus Christ. The sprawling clouds of heaven. Every pope from the first to faces not yet recognizable and a portrait of Jesus' appearance in his second coming. The other six, on the right, show, from right to left, the cataclysm of the universe, the only true visage of Satan as viewable to the eyes of man, the true image of Judas, the sprawling flames of hell, every human-bodied demon from the first to faces not yet recognizable, and a portrait of the Antichrist in his second coming. Now six and six makes twelve, but what of the thirteenth? This thirteenth painting is turned around on its wall pin; the image facing the wall. The space around it is roped up at a very wide diameter, and under the flipped image is a sign in three languages. The top is in the scriptures of the seraphim, the bottom in the runes of highest demonic orders, and in the middle in Roman letters, DO NOT TOUCH. Now, like the kiss, I can't say this part with as much certainty, but all the same, I heard that somehow, as he died, Bouchamp flayed his skin, his organs, his very soul into some sort of collage. How he took his dead body and created such a horrific masterpiece, I could never say, nor would I ever dare to. So, if you make it, Maybe you can flip the canvas over and tell me sometime. You can tell me all about it over a drink. Paints quite a picture, doesn't it? Speaking of which, we love art and drawings. Send us your interpretations of some of the stories you hear or of our monsters and tag us on Instagram at WeAreSnarled or Twitter at WeAreSnarled. Karma is a powerful thing. It can tiptoe within the shadow of fate, and other times, it can be like this creepypasta. The Smiling Man in Black, written by Anonymous. When I was younger, I lived with my father and his mother. I was the only child, a girl at that, and my father was very protective of me. My grandmother, on the other hand, hated me. At first, she would just yell at me, and shove me around when Dad was at work. It escalated quickly after he started working longer hours to make ends meet. I rarely saw my father at that point. For four years, she did things I can't even bring myself to really think about. Not enough to write it. For those four years, I prayed and prayed for release. I prayed and wished for her to die. To God, to whoever would listen. My dad probably would have believed me if I'd had a chance to talk to him, but she'd made me feel as though I were an abomination over the years that I couldn't bear it anymore, after she killed my kitten and made me bury it. As I left my bedroom, I caught a whiff of something very rancid, like vomit, burning flesh and blood mixed together warm. I knew all of these smells fairly well, considering what my grandmother did to me and I thought for a moment it might have been my imagination or her making something disgusting for me to eat to torture me more. While I recognized the separate smells in a way, I had never smelled something like this. As I got closer and closer to the stairs overlooking the living room, which was right across from the bathroom, I started to hear something. Faintly, I remember hearing it a few feet back, but suddenly it seemed so much louder. My head was pounding, my heart was pounding, and all I could hear was gurgle, smack, smack, swish, swish, rip. The mere idea of peeking over the stairs and into the living room was suddenly so profoundly frightening that I almost just went back into my bedroom, but... Strangely enough, it was amazingly easy to just do it anyway. What I saw in the living room will never leave me for as long as I live, in more than one sense. My grandmother was lying on the ground. There was someone wearing black kneeling over her. They were both covered in blood. The person's head was moving rhythmically over its hands, which held what I then realized was some organ from her body. The person didn't look up and I was scared silent. There was so much blood, so, so much blood. The sound of gnawing, the smacking mouth, the snapping of her organs as they were ripped from my grandmother's body, what was left of it. The brutally grotesque sight of her chest cavity having been torn open, of her body being consumed little by little filled me with terror I had never known before. I didn't know what to do. It ate her body, slowly, seeming to enjoy every bite it took, its body swaying and moving so unnaturally that I couldn't even think it was human. I couldn't stop watching. I couldn't run away. The sheer terror of it choked the scream I would have let out. It stopped. I stopped. It looked up at me after what seemed an eternity releasing the contents of its mouth. Gory pieces in blood, some brown at that point covered most of its face. What I could see of the face, it seemed to be male, very pale in patches. Where eyes were supposed to be were black pits, pits that seemed to dilate, expand, and retract. He had no lips, but his mouth twitched like some kind of hologram going in and out, slowly smiling, the smile expanding beyond normal human ability. I vomited and fainted. I woke up. My father was home and worrying over me. My grandmother's body was gone, along with all of the blood. Where's grandma? Where is she? I kept asking him until I had to stop from the look in his eyes. He told me her heart was bad and she was in heaven now. I couldn't believe it. That was impossible, right? Did I imagine that whole thing? At our funeral, on the way to her burial site, I saw the man again. He looked more human, but I knew it was him. I remembered that smile. That day, I smiled back. I still have dreams about that man. Sometimes, I think I see him in public. Even when I don't see him, I can feel him there. He's always there watching me. What do you think? Do you think she imagined the smiling man in the suit? That her grandmother had died and some way spirit had imparted this grotesque imagery to give her some kind of catharsis? And if the smiling man in black is real, why is that man still following her? And now, my dark darlings, let's escape into the madness that lies within this abridged version of Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping as if someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this, and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow. Vainly I had sought to borrow from my books or cease of sorrow— Sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. Some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This it is, and nothing more. Presently, my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore. But the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door, darkness there and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the darkness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning. Soon I heard again, a tapping, somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let my heart be still a moment in this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when, with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not an instant stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady perched upon my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. Then, this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling, by the grim and stern decorum of the continents it wore. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, though, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly grim and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's Plutonian shore, quoth the raven. Nevermore. Much I marveled. This ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, Though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore, That one word, as if his soul and that one word he did outpour. Nothing farther then he uttered, not a feather then he fluttered, Till I scarcely more than muttered, Other friends have flown before, on the morrow he will leave me, As my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, Never more. Straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. Then upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking never more. Then, methought, the air grew denser. Perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by angels whose faint footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil. "'Whether tempter sent, or whether tempest toss thee here ashore, "'desolate, yet all undotted, on this desert land enchanted, "'on this home by horror haunted, tell me, truly I implore,' "'quoth the raven, never more. "'Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend,' "'I shrieked upstarting, get thee back into the tempest "'in the night's platonian shore.' Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thou soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of palace just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted never more. This week's podcast stories were edited by Marquia McCarty and Sabina Graves. Audio edited by Fitz Harris. Graphics by Johnny Ashley. Produced by Annalise Nelson. Music by Sapphire Sandalo.